Our Father, what a, a sweet privilege it is to be reminded that out of Zion, salvation has come. And we long for the day when Christ returns. We long for the day to see the one who has loved us and given himself for us, to see the one who is making all things new, to see the one who has ushered in your kingdom and has called us to himself that we might love him and worship him and follow him all the days of our lives. Thank you for that. We turn our hearts and our attention to your word now. Would you speak through your servant? May we make much of you and may we make much of the good news that you have for us in it. I pray your blessings upon reading and preaching and hearing, but also, Father, make us doers and make us doers of this passage where we learn to rest and marvel in the security that is ours in Jesus. May you do this for your glory. Amen. Uh, good morning again. We're going to finish our uh, time in this first section in, in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. So if somebody has, if you have a black Bible on your, right in front of you, somebody want to tell me what page that, that, that's on? 976? All right, so 976. If you're new and don't know where Ephesians is, just go to 976. There's a black Bible, and we're right there. Chapter 1, go down to verse 11. In him, speaking of Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. <clears throat> uh, when I was growing up, uh, it was not uncommon for me to see my grandmother, for example, who pretty much took anybody in. I mean, if you fell on hard times, your fault, if it's not your fault, uh, had a cousin who got pregnant when she was 15 and I just I could tell you countless stories of people just kind of knew you go to grandmother's house if you fall on hard times that's where you go and my grandmother kept an open door it didn't matter what time it didn't matter what you did you were always welcomed in her home and I, I think that's part of the reason why it spilled over into our own family that when I was growing up, we had two cousins and one of my best friends that at different points in my childhood, they all lived with us, right? But it went a step further than that where my mom and dad actually invited strangers in. And I think you've probably heard me talk about it here before, but we were a foster family. And my mom and dad and my Aunt Charlotte and Uncle Jesse, who were members here, who are both going to be with the Lord, they also were foster families as well. And so we had three different uh, teenagers staying with us at various times in my life. We had one girl, she was the first um, young lady who we fostered and she stayed about a year and a half and she was about 12 or 13. And then right after that, we got another young man. He was the same age. Um, and finally we had one more foster brother. Uh, so just, and it was always a treat, right? You get a new, 
brother or sister who comes to stay with you and was always mind-blowing for me as a child to watch some of the privileges that we had that I think we took for granted, right? So the privilege of walking to your refrigerator and having food in your refrigerator every single time you opened it, it was a privilege. I mean, we had kids who stayed with us who that just was not the norm. It was some brokenness, maybe addiction, or an older caretaker had died and the family was trying to figure out who would take care of the child. Um, someone who would take them school shopping, on the, you know, getting ready for school, and someone who would give them their own bed to sleep in. Someone who would put some structure around their lives when they wake up, when they come in, when they go to bed. All of that, like that, that was the really sweet side of it. But there was a, another side of it that was really hard, and I think it had a lot to do with the age that my parents, uh, they were getting young teenagers. And I think fostering is a really good thing. I think it's biblical. I think it falls under how we care for widows and orphans in their time of need. But there was a side to fostering that was really hard. And the side of it that was hard was the anger, right? That we would get teenagers who would be angry at their birth families, right? And, and there was just this rage that was built up and it would oftentimes work itself out in uh, fights. There was this bitterness, right, against maybe me and our siblings because we sort of had a house that was st structured, right? Um, it was all of this, and, but the one that was probably the hardest for me was when uh, one of the young men, they did not want it to be a temporary thing. They wanted it to be forever. And it, it worked itself out when you sort of watched him get angry and he would calm himself down really quick. It worked itself out when, I think I shared with you, this really big fight that I was about to get into and he jumped in and there was this guy teasing me and teasing him for his parents not wanting him and my family taking him in and he just beat this guy down, right? And this was like the neighborhood bully and I grew up, at this point we were living in the Queens out by RTS and he just beat this guy down and it just blew me away because he would let me beat him up. So I knew he could, I, I, after that I'm like, man, like you could have been killing me, right? <laughs> but again, he was sort of holding that anger in, did not want to ruffle the feathers. And on the way home, uh, he said, do you think mom and dad are gonna send me home for this? And that was the first time in my life where I actually remember feeling compassion. And it wasn't manufactured. It wasn't my mom and dad telling me I ought to go do this thing. I remember looking at him, walking home with him, thinking, I'm not saying a word. Just, I just, it, it just it touched me. And there he was living with that cloud. If I do one thing wrong, they're going to send me back. If I do one thing wrong, they're not going to want me. And he ended up going back home and he ended up, his parents, I mean, his, his family got him. But that cloud, living under that cloud, I, I mention this because I, I wonder if we view our relationship with the Lord this way. That he's fostering. That he's taking us in for a season. But there is no long-term investment or commitment beyond this season. I wonder, do we live like my foster brother, that there's this imaginary line in the sand that the Lord is saying, 
If you cross this line, you're out of my household. You see, Paul has been talking about this theme of adoption. Paul talked about it last week when we talked about that, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our sin debt has been paid. The father buys us and brings us back into his home and he elevates us. We're not servants. We're not freedmen. We're actually sons and daughters. And we have all the rights to, to him as a child born in the family by birth. Right. That is the reality. But I wonder, do we always feel that? Are we always aware that his love is secure, that it is everlasting, that there is not one single thing we can do to be put out of the father's house, that when he brought us in, he closed the door and locked it and you are safe and secure forever. Now, the reason this is so important, because I think this is what Paul is doing. He's talking to Christians and he's telling them, you've been adopted. You've been adopted out of that bondage of slavery into the house of God. And you are really a son. It is really that good. But I wonder, do they doubt? And here's what Paul does in our text this morning. He says, you are secure. You are secure. Your salvation is done and, and you are the Lord's forever. And this is what I want you to rest in. And so what I think he's doing in our passage is after he doesn't leave the theme of adoption, because you're going to see inheritance come up twice in here. I think he's building on that after you have been adopted into the household of God. Now what? How does God feel about you? Who are you? What is God doing in you to make sure that you finish until the end, that you're not ever going to be cast away? I think that's what Paul's doing. He's coming behind this idea of adoption and he's driving home this case that it is impossible for God's people to never become not God's people. Now, what's the reason? What, what's Paul's hope here? What, 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 what's his rationale? The first thing Paul says is that we have a new identity. If you want to write notes, we have a new identity. Now, identity is a word that I think we use often, but it's, it's really difficult to pin down. We might say that, hey, this person is finding their identity in this thing or in this drug or in this money or in, you know, I mean, you, you fill in the blank. I think on some level we all are have been or do try to find our identity in something, right? We lay hold of something. If I get this something, then this thing, will, it will compliment me. It will fix me. It will, it will give me something to set my heart and affections upon. It will define me. And so the word identity is actually from Latin, and it's, it's identitas, which sounds a whole lot like identical, right? And so think about it, right? If I have this apple and this apple, and I can say that they are identical, then what I'm saying is that they are the same. They, they are the same. And so when you talk about a person and its identity, the idea behind it is sameness, not changing, right? So, so think about the image. And so now, now let's track this. Let's say that a person finds their identity in getting Jordans, right? Let's say you're a sneakerhead. And every, I, I know you, I, Tasha is a sneakerhead or was a sneakerhead, right? But let's just say that that is your identity. Now, here's how that works. That you own sneakers.com. You got a plug. You got somebody 
at Foot Locker who telling you, hey, when the new Jays, they're going to hold you a box to the side and you're going to get them. You can, might get them a day early if they want to open the store, all of that. But it takes work, right? You got to manage that. You got to know, you got to go online and look at all the releases. You got to know all, when all the stuff comes out. You got to know how many shoes each store gets. You got to know a person there who trusts you enough to sell it. And then you got to get it. You got to earn the money to do it. In other words, and here's the thing, then you get this identity as a sneakerhead, right? So everywhere you go, people know, oh, that's the girl, man. She always rocking fresh J's, right? Oh, that's the dude. He always got fresh J's, right? Look at his kicks. That when they see you, they go right there, right? That's identity, right? You, you're building your identity. Now, it works a whole bunch of different ways. We put identity in having a perfect family, right? That, that, that we think we have a beautiful wife or a handsome husband, and we got some beautiful kids, and, and we want the people to know that we think a lot about who our family and what it looks like. And so guess what we do? We got to take a picture, and we got to post it on Instagram, right? You just have to do every single thing that we do, that that's the image that you're projecting. Now, here's the thing. You got to keep that up, and you can always tell when it's wearing on you because when your son does not want to smile and you're angry and you make him take the picture five times, right? Or you do something and you, you choose not to post it, right? You see how that gets in you? If you're building your identity around that, then that thing, you also have to keep working for it. Think about the identity of being woke, right? I'm, I'm conscious, right? And so... If that's your identity of being woke and alert and in tune with everything going on in the world that demands that Christians do something, then, then that's good. That's a, that, that you can do that. But here's the thing. What happens when you're on vacation and you're away from social media and something pops off? You feel that pressure? The pressure to get back on and the pressure to get online and to see who's saying what and reading what? There's... The, Identity works that way. It can be in possessions that, that if you have a lot of money and, and you want to be known as this person who is successful, then you, you sort of have to keep that up, right? The vacations and the new house and the new car and all these new things about where your kids go to school, all of that, that it becomes a part of what people outside of here and you're portraying sameness, right? You want to be consistent in, in, in Jordans or in snapping family pictures or in how much money you make, and it torments you, right? There's a work to get that, and there's a work to keep it up. It's a hard thing to do, right? Now, here's the difference. That's an earned identity, and it's damaging. And Christianity can feel a lot like this. You wake up every day with something to prove to self to the world, to someone, to God, that this is at the core of what I would call fostering theology, right? That I'm only here for a season. I have to prove my worth. Don't ruffle the feathers. Obey. Don't lose your temper. Don't show emotion. Admit, don't admit failure. You might be kicked out. That this is the work of trying to establish an identity. And God says, there's a better way. There's a better way when God says, I will confer identity upon you. And you don't work for it. It's yours. Now, that's what's behind this text when he says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, right? So right there, I, I think this is the one time when I think the ESV gets it wrong. So here's what I'm going to ask Jimmy to, all right, so here it is. So look at the ESV, it's the top. In him we have obtained an inheritance, right? Look how the NIV translates that same phrase. In him we were also chosen, now go down to the ASV. In him, I say, in whom we also were made a heritage. 
I go down to the Net Bible. In Christ, we have been claimed as God's own possession. You see the difference? And it's real subtle, but I think the, the Net Bible at the bottom, it's more accurate. And here's why. That word right there, inheritance, it's in the passive form. So first of all, it's not a noun. It's a verb. And so the ESV translates it like a noun, like it's something that I give you. But in actuality, it's a verb. It's a passive verb. And so you could say, hey, I, someone gives me an inheritance that's passive. But that, that, that's treating that word like it's a noun. Or you could say like the, the, in, the Net Bible, I have become God's inheritance. I have become his chosen possession. You see, that's why in your Bibles, you see, and it's a really slight nuance, but I think it makes all the difference in the world. What, what, what Paul is saying is in him, in Jesus, we have become God's most treasured possession on the face of the planet. Now, who is the we, right? So look at your, the next slide. I know I'm, I'm showing you a lot, but you got to get, I think, Paul's argument. Who is the we? He says, in Christ, we have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined according to the one purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Go back and see Ephesians, the second passage I preached, if you want to know about that phrase, predestined. Uh, so that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you see right there, Paul's going back and forth. Who is the we? Who is the we? Who is the you? And who is the our and the we at the end? Here's what we know. You start in verse 12. So that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ. Paul is talking about the Jews. And if you remember Jesus' commandment to his disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then where? The ends of the earth. That when Peter was preaching and thousands were coming to faith, who was Peter preaching to? He was not preaching to Gentiles. He says, this Jesus whom you killed, whom you crucified, that they were cut to the heart. In other words, the first to hope in Christ, it was not the Gentiles. The first to hope in Christ were the Jews. And so when Paul says that in verse 12, so that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In other words, God never forgotten Israel. He did not bypass Israel. He came and made sure that the gospel was preached in Israel, but it didn't stop in Israel. And that's why you see verse 13. And when you, you Gentiles in Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked. In other words, he said, we Jews, we were the first. And this is the praise of God's glory. And then you, when you heard the word of the gospel, when you heard the preaching of Jesus, you too were converted. And so who is the we in verse 11? It's Jew and Gentile. We Jew and Gentile have been claimed as God's possession. Look at verse 14. Until, who is a down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the nuance in the text. All right, that's enough. Thank you so much. Now, this is so important because in our call to worship, you know what it said in the call to worship? 
It was from Deuteronomy 32. The reason I had Steve read it, and the context of this is beautiful. Moses is about to go and die. Imagine God telling you, yo, bro, tomorrow you die. I want you to walk up on a mountain and die. I want you to see the promised land and then die right there. So what you're getting in this section is some of his last words. And you know what he says? Israel is not your, the Lord, your father. He created you and established you. He says, go ask the old people. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. You see what's happening? That what Paul does is he picks back up on that thing back there that would have been only applied to Jews. And he says, no, no more, no more. God's heritage, God's most prized possession on the face of the planet, galaxies and quasars and suns and moons, and none of that compares to how God feels about you, the church, the multi-ethnic, multi-class church. You are, we are God's most prized possession. Right? Now, look, I've had a lot of prized possessions in my life. My first prized possession was probably my baseball card and, bat and, and basketball card collection. I used to go to the Circle K and buy the little box of little pack of baseball cards. I got some Shaquille O'Neal rookie cards. I got some Jordan stuff. Like, it is a prized possession of mine, right? My second big possession was my first car that I bought right before I started working. I went to the car lot. I brought me a brand new Chevy Tahoe and I put me some rims on it <laughs> and I tinted my windows and I put me a system in it. I put bars. I mean, I'm telling you, like, it was a really prized possession, right? And when my daughter was born, I sold it and got a minivan for my wife, right? <laughs> you see how that works, right? Right now, if you were to tell me your house is on fire and you can only get three things out. I love my laptop. It has a lot of stuff on it. I have a chair in my house that my great great grandfather who started Ferris Street Baptist Church in 1893, who was the second pastor at Mount Helm. You go into West Jackson Top Street in the addition is named after my great-great-grandfather. I'm named after him. I have his chair in my house, 200 years old. It is precious, but if I can only take three things out of my house, you know what's burning up? My dog. I love my dog. <laughs> he is burned up. I love my computer. It is burned up. I love this chair that's 200 years old. It's burned up. You know who I'm getting out of my house, my most treasured possessions, my wife, my son, my daughter, right? Christians, this is how God feels about you. And it's not that I don't love my dog, and it's not that I don't love my computer, and it's not that I don't love this chair, but I love my, my kids and my wife more. And when God says, you, the church, 
with your new identity that you got when you believed in the gospel, this identity that you did not work for, he gave it to you. You are his treasured possession of all the people and things and places and creations on the face of the planet. He looks at you and says, I'm riding with you 100% of the time, always. I will never choose anything or anyone above you. That is your identity, Christian. That's how much your father in heaven loves you. You are his treasured possession. You know what? In that freeing, you don't have to like me and I don't have to earn your approval. I don't have to search for it in other places or things. The king of heaven loves you. That he looks at you and he's delighted with you. He's pleased with you. Do you know how freeing that is that you don't have to put something right there and say, I'm going to build my identity around it. God says, you don't have to. You have me. You are loved. You are wanted. You are desired. And I want you. That's why Paul says he'll never send you away. You are his treasured possession. You are his allotted portion. A new identity. The second thing Paul says is you now have a new inheritance. And this is why I think how we translate verse 11 is crucial. Because if you think Paul is saying in him we have an inheritance, then he picks it back up in verse 14, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. It comes across to me as, as kind of materialistic. But if you read it like I think it needs to be read, it's this statement, right? This is a tweetable statement. God's treasured possession, his church, will have access to all his treasured possessions. You get that? His treasured possession will have access. And I think that's, that's what he's getting at, who is the guarantee of our inheritance that is to come. Now, this idea of inheritance, it's multicultural, right? We leave life insurance policies, trust funds, if you got them, right? Luke 15, when, when, when the younger brother went to the father, father, can I have my portion of the inheritance, right? He would have gotten one third. The other older brother would have gotten two thirds. That was just kind of the way they did it. But this whole idea of a father blessing, blesses the man who leaves an inheritance to his children's children, this whole idea of inheritance, that, 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 that it, 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 it crosses cultures and particularly because Paul had been talking about adoption, he now picks back up the theme of inheritance. You've been adopted, and because you are sons, in verse 5, you do have an inheritance, in verse 14. Now, what do we know about this idea of the inheritance? First thing, it's, it's an Old Testament idea. I promise you, if you go read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, listen to what, what, what Moses writes. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all of your enemies around so that you might live in safety. In other words, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, this idea of the Lord your God leaving you an inheritance, that was like a no-brainer. They knew that, that the inheritance that we will get, it will involve the land, the land over there. The Lord has given us that land over there. And so what I want to do is sort of unpack how they might have understood this inheritance. And so the first part of it, it is really material. You'll go and have wine in abundance, says the Lord. 
You have vineyards that you didn't plant, says the Lord. You have homes that you didn't build, says the Lord. All of these things are, are tangible things you can touch and eat and taste and see. And so on, on some level, even in the Old Testament, the inheritance that Yahweh would have left them would have been material. But here's the other thing about the inheritance. It was also gracious. Gracious in the sense that did Israel plant those vineyards? No. Did they build those homes? No. The nations before them did the building, did the planting, did the harvesting, and then they were to go in because God says their sin has come up to the heavens and, and their time is up. So here's what I want you to do. You're going to go in, destroy them, and then I'm going to give you everything that they built in advance. So from Israel's perspective, the inheritance, they didn't work for it. It was already prepared by another there's another part of the inheritance that it's not just material, it's not just gracious, it's also spiritual. And you see this in Deuteronomy 10, that, 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 that the Lord told the Levites, you get no inheritance. I am your inheritance. So there's a spiritual side to this inheritance, right? That you get to behold me, you Levites. You get to work around my temple. You get to mediate and work in the temple and behold the holy things of the Lord. And so when you think about inheritance, you can't throw away Old Testament thought. It is material, it is spiritual, and it is gift. Now, Peter picks up on this same idea in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is being kept for you. And so Peter is talking to Christians who have, have left their homes and their families. They're being persecuted. And he says, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just stay the course. Your father in heaven has an inheritance for you that is way better than land. And so this inheritance, it is undefiled. Israel could defile their land with their sin. And, and Peter says, no, not the inheritance, that the, the new inheritance, the better inheritance. It is undefilable. It is unplunderable. No one can take it because God himself is guarding it, right? So you get this image that what Peter is pointing us to is something way better than the Old Testament idea of the inheritance. But Paul's talking to us. And so when you talk about the new inheritance that is now ours as believers, a part of it will be material. Right. You can touch it. You can see it. You can eat. You can climb mountains. Right. You can see things and sights and colors and all these things that our minds cannot we can't even think it up right now, but, but the new heavens and the new earth, they will be material. We won't just be spirits just kind of floating everywhere. We will have physical bodies enjoying physical things and seeing beautiful things in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a part of the inheritance. It's also a gift. That in, in, in John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are what? Many what? Rooms. If it were not so, I would not tell you. I will go to him and I will come back and get you and you will be with me always. Then you look at Hebrews. We long for the city whose builder and maker is man. No, God. 
And so somehow our Savior and Lord has gone on before us. And when we walk into the inheritance, we will walk into it in the same way that Old Testament saints walked into the promised land, except it's not built by wicked Canaanite. It's built by our righteous king. And he says, walk in and look at what I have been preparing in advance for you. It is still gracious. It is still gift. And it's also spiritual. That the reason the new heavens and the new earth and glory and heaven will be beautiful is because Jesus will be there. And we will get to see him in all of his splendor and all of his beauty. And we will get to commune with the living God, not hindered by sin. We'll get to walk in and talk with him. And so you see that the inheritance that awaits us, Christian, it's material. It's gracious and it's spiritual. Now, why is this important? I think it's important because the order of this text is king. Here's why. God's treasured possession, right? Look at this. Those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and have believed in him, those those persons, those people who have responded to the gospel with faith, we now get the goods of the gospel, Now, here's what often happens in our culture. It often happens. We don't want Jesus. We want what God can give. Don't talk to me about election. Don't talk to me about repenting of my sins. Don't talk to me about going to church and and hearing somebody talk about this Jesus dude. Just tell me about how I can get these rims and how I can get these things and how I can get this money and this house. And Paul says, you are fundamentally missing how Christianity works. Those who know God and turn from their sins and God makes them uh, with a new identity. You become his treasured possessions to you. He says, I'll open it up and give it to you. But you can't get that without getting him. And so prosperity preaching, it's 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 half truth. It's talking about the good stuff. But it's not telling you that this over here, your soul Right with the Lord. That's what you better be talking a lot about. Not just what I can get from God. He's not a genie, right? He's not that. But here's where I think we can also mess up. And we get this right. Adoption, we get it. And you know what we don't talk enough about? The new heavens and the new earth. We don't talk about the treasures that God has in store for us. We don't talk about what it means to behold Jesus face to face. We don't talk about seeing sights that nothing on this earth can compare to. And you want to know, I think one of the reasons why is because of affluence. When you have money and you have things and you have status and you can go and take this trip over there and do this and you can go over here and do this, then then your appetite for what is over there, it starts to wane. And what Paul is saying is no. If you are a born again believer, I don't care what sight you go see in this life, it will not compare to the next. It will not compare. 
I don't know what kind of access we have to God now. It will not compare to what it awaits us. And so for us as believers, I think the call is to rest in what is coming, to be okay with being generous, to be okay with letting home values plummet, to be okay with all the things that we think we have to have in this life. He says, I'm telling you, it's going to get better. And so how then should the future glory, the future hope, the future inheritance, how then should that break into our lives right now? I'm telling you, if we got a glimpse of it, we would be more generous. If we got a glimpse of it, we would not have identity issues. I mean, I, I mean not, not completely not have them, but I think we'd rest in our identity in Christ. Tim Keller has this uh, analogy, uh, this, this illustration that he's used several times, but he talks about the importance of hope. And he says, I want you to imagine two men or women that you put in this room, right? And you put them in this, this room and they, they have to stay there all day and they have to do this mundane task, whatever it might be, you know. And then you come to one and you say, hey, I'm going to give you $50 when you finish. You got to stay there a whole day, a whole day. And when you come out, I got $50 waiting. All right. That's, that's one guy. How does that $50 speak into what he's doing in this room by himself all day long? He says, suppose we put another man in another room, same room, same work, same task. You don't really want to do it, but you'll do it for money, right? And he says, suppose this man says, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Doing the same thing he's doing. He asks a question, which two men will have more joy in what they're doing? The guy who's getting the million dollars. Why? Because you know what's waiting on the other side. The case that Paul is making to you as a Christian. Your inheritance in Jesus. It is the most beautiful thing that you've never seen. And Paul is begging you and pleading with us to let the reality of the new inheritance break into our little room of our little lives right now and let us live this life of joy, knowing that when we get out, God's over there. That's the power of future hope, knowing what God has in store. It can break in and it can change us right now. Now, here's the dilemma. I don't always feel like that inheritance is that precious. I don't see it. I can't put my hands on it, right? And I don't always feel like God loves me as his treasured possessions. You catch me on my bad day when my anger and sin and bitterness is at work. I look a whole lot like untreasured possession, right? So what has God done for us to take care of our identity crisis and our inheritance crisis? And Paul says he is fulfilling an old promise. He gives the Holy Spirit. Now, this is no small thing, because in Acts 19, when Paul went to Ephesus, that they had never heard of the Holy Spirit, right? So you can go back and read that on your own. And what Paul is saying, wait a minute, don't you know the Holy Spirit was promised 
In Joel chapter 2, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. In John 16, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, he will come when I ascend. And in our passage, Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there to solve your identity crisis. When you are in this place and you don't feel love, Holy Spirit's right there. When you're in this place and the inheritance that awaits you, it doesn't feel real, Holy Spirit is right there. And that's why you see, look at what it says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You get that language? You've been sealed. In Paul's day, it had a lot to do with this stamp that you would make out of wood or some type of other substance. You would put ink on it or wax, and you would put it on something that belonged to you. And so if it was, if it was cattle, you would brand it. If it were an important package that you were trying to get somewhere, you would wrap it up and put this stamp on it, and it let, it let everyone else around you know that this package belongs to him. And here is what Paul is saying, Christian. You were sealed. The stamp of God has been placed on you, and it cannot be removed. The Holy Spirit has not branded you like I'm branded on my arms. He has come and just sort of put his mark on your soul and he has claimed you as his forever and he will never remove the seal. So doesn't matter if you feel like you're God's treasure possession. Paul says you are. If you have believed the gospel, you are. And here's the thing, your unconfessed sin, it does not nullify you. When you get old and we get Alzheimer's and our minds start saying things and we start doing things that our 50-year-old self would look at and say, man or woman, what are you doing? When we start to lose our mental faculties, if you actually think that your security is resting in your mind and your ability to hold it all together, then why do we need the Holy Spirit? But what Paul says right here, when the Holy Spirit seals you, Whatever you got going on, whatever you might do in the future when you're 90 or 100, you might look and you might talk like you're not there. And Paul says, no, you're there. You're there because the Spirit has sealed you forever and ever. And there is nothing you or no one or anything that can come and remove it. You are secure. That's the first thing Paul says. The Holy Spirit is coming. He has been sent to sear this on your soul forever. You're always his. Rest in that, Christian. But there's another side of it, right? There's this crisis with the inheritance, right? I don't always want to leave the world, right? I kind of like living where I live. I kind of like my house, and I kind of like the things of this life. And, and how do I know that these things won't trip me up? And how do I know that I won't sort of do a switcheroo and make this world more important than the inheritance to come? Look at what he says in verse 14. The Holy Spirit who also seals you is also the one who gives the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glory. And that word guarantee is like down payment. When you go put a down payment on a car, a down payment on a house, when I got on one knee and put a ring on my wife's finger, I'm pledging. I'll meet you at the aisle on May 15th, 2004. I'll meet you there. 
I'm pledging that. It's a down payment. It's the first installment. And what Paul is saying, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart is the first installment of the rest that is to come. And God don't break no promises. I got a chance to see this up close a few weeks ago. Miss Lenny, who was one of our older members, she had a stroke and but she was really coherent. The first time I saw her, we talked. She knew who I was. She recognized my voice. And there was a team of people here, Steve and Marshall and myself and uh, Lane Turner, and just trying to figure out, okay, what's the plan of action? Miss Lenny, I'm telling you, she could have gotten a feeding tube and she could have come home. And you know what she said? I'm ready to go see Jesus. She chose the inheritance versus staying right here. Where does that kind of dying grace come from? When you have to step into what is unknowable, right? You have to step into what we have to apprehend by faith. Where does that kind of courage come from? The Holy Spirit. He's the first installment of what else is to come. And once we have him, the whole world of the future opens up. And so that is all of this is why Paul is saying you're secure. And so let's go back to that first example. Imagine there's a room and imagine you're in it. And somebody says, I give you a million dollars when you come out. But let's imagine that you have to stay in there not for a day, but for 50 years. That's hard. Imagine if the one who promised you the money says, I'm going to get in there with you. And I'm going to make sure you finish. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to encourage you. And I'm going to do this work with you. That's how the good news works. It's not just that God is saying, hey, look at what I have for you. Now wait. No, no, no. God ups that. He says, this is what I have for you. Now let me send my spirit within you. And while you're walking through this little box of life, your spirit, my spirit, is in there with you. And together we will make it to the end. Rest in that. Please rest in that. You're secure in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you and we thank you for your word and how true and sweet and powerful it is. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling our hearts. Father, I pray for those who don't know you who might be seeking after things, who might be setting their identity around being popular or being cool or having these things. Father, I pray that you would allow them to see the futility of that, that you give us identity in Jesus if we would just believe and trust the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the good news. It really is good, and it gets better and better. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.